This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Uh, first, I'm going to ask you something. Uh, hopefully, you know the answer if you haven't rehearsed this. Port out Starboard Home, yeah. which this documentary is called Port, yeah, yeah. Port Out Starboard Home. What, can you, for our listeners, can you describe what it actually means? Originally, uh, maybe hundreds or, hundreds or so years ago, when the, the British were going out to India, uh, the most expensive side of the ship was port out and starboard home. That cabin was the most expensive. The reason why uh, that the sun was on the opposite side. So if you're on the cabin with the sun beating down on the way out and beating down on the way home, it was quite uncomfortable. They had no air conditioning in those days. So that's where the term posh. Yeah, they're the people who could, could afford to specify and pay for the more expensive cabin. That was the voice of Fergus Britton, who is assistant harbour master at Dublin Port. And we will be hearing from Fergus later on in this series. Posh, or Port Out, Starboard Home, is a four-part radio documentary on the people and the area surrounding Dublin Port, produced by Ger Ledden for Near FM. Actually, the first Port Authority was set up in 1708, uh, and that was set up because the merchants and traders of Dublin were unhappy with the management of the river. Eamon O'Reilly is Chief Executive of the Dublin Port Company. I spoke to Eamon and he outlined the history of the port and some of the company's plans for the future. So the the first organisation, the first port authority, if you will, was the uh, was the ballast office, and the ballast office was was it was a committee that reported to Dublin Corporation. The Great South Wall was built during the 18th century, with the decision being taken taken to build it on this on, in 1715. Bly came in 1800 and did a great detailed survey of the bay. And based on that survey, survey, the North Bull Wall was built, which was the other half of two training walls, which caused the channel in Dublin Port to be created. And we still benefit and completely depend on those two walls today to have a navigable channel into Dublin Port suitable for modern shipping. And two-thirds of the Republic's port traffic goes through Dublin. That's... Would that be unusual for most ports? It's, it's, it's not unusual. If you think of... Uh, I mean, Ireland is an island. If you take the other island states within the EU, Malta and Cyprus, they are much smaller than, mm. than Ireland. But you will find, for example, in Malta, that most of its trade goes through the port of Valletta. Likewise, if you go to Cyprus, you'll find that a lo- very large part of its trade goes through Limassol. So if you take the island of Ireland, because ports and shipping, it's all very international, they don't see any any borders, roughly the same volume of trade goes through the combination of Belfast and Larne, which are very close to each other, then goes through Dublin port. Mm -hmm. The population of Northern Ireland is 1.8 million. The population of the greater Dublin area is also 1.8 million. So what is coming through Dublin is actually pretty much a reflection on the economy that is within the reachable hinterland of Dublin. So there's nothing unusual about that. A huge amount in, in terms of value of Ireland's gross domestic product will flow through Dublin Port. Um, we have been growing quite strongly in the last couple of years. Um, and, and in fact, since the, the recession took hold, the, the amount of trade 
uh, that Dublin is handling, the proportion of trade that Dublin is handling, has actually risen. So Dublin is the premier gateway into uh, the, our economy, both for goods and, and also, very interesting, for a very large number of passengers. Dublin Port would have almost 2 million passengers in a year, mostly on the ferries, but also on cruise ships. In terms of the cruise industry, the cruise industry is growing. Um, Dublin is a very, very popular destination for cruise ships to call. I think it's quite possible in years to come that you might find cruise ships basing themselves in Dublin, as they do in Barcelona, for example, and people could start a cruise, cruise in Dublin. Uh, flying in from flying the UK in, or France. Because the airlift into Dublin is extraordinary. Mm. You have the tunnel giving a connection down to the port. Mm. You will. Pr- I can't think of another city, capital city in Europe. So indeed, close to the airport. So close. It is, we have an extraordinarily close link which could be very very beneficial for the development of that uh, and, business. And talking about links, uh, North Dublin, I presume a lot of your staff and a lot of your workforce would originate from this area and from the north of Dublin. Um, well, just to be clear, Dublin Port Company itself employs very few people. We only mm. employ 137 people. Um, all of the activity within the port is handled by mostly private sector companies. And you're right, a lot of the dock workforce traditionally would have come from the Ringsend, Irish Town and East Wall areas. And there still would be a significant number of people who working within the port estate who, who come from those areas. But increasingly, as in nearly every other business, people are commuting uh, distances. They're coming from the suburbs of Dublin. Some would be coming from outside of Dublin. But still a very important link for us is that link into those local communities. Dublin Port Company are recognised for a very good corporate social policy. Can you describe some of the corporate social initiatives that you might have? Yeah, we would have, um, at, at a policy level, we would, we would follow that 1% rule that we, we contribute not less than 1% of our profits every year to a range of activities, and some of them we've been involved with for, for a long time, a range of activities in the local communities, and it is specifically focused in on the local communities. And the activities would be under under three headings. There would be community activities and events, there would be sports, and there would be education. And in recent years, we have been tilting our, our involvement more towards that education, particularly in the light of the, the recession, the collapse of our economy. I think it was important that we, we put our resources into areas that would, would uh, have long-term benefit for people from the local communities. Eamon O'Reilly, Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Port Company. Thank you very much. Stroll through the sand dunes. You don't even need binoculars. All you have to do is listen. Bull Island is a vital part of the ecological system which goes to make up Dublin Bay. To get an idea of this fantastic amenity in the heart of Dublin, I spoke to botanist Tom Cooney. Because there's bird song everywhere. Now, obviously, if you're a bit more uh, involved in bird watching and you know some of the species, you will see a lot more. You will see things like meadow pipits, reed buntings, you'll see finches like linnets. Um, you'll see a whole range of birds there. So it depends on the season. When it comes to autumn, this is the migration season. And what happens is the birds that have nested in the northern latitudes of Europe, they're migrating south towards Africa and they pass through Bull Island. So it's a migratory station. Birds stop there for a few days, they feed, they build up their energy reserves and then they move on south towards maybe Spain or North Africa or even further, some of them go as far as South Africa itself, the country of South Africa. So it's a stopping off route as well as everything else. And then when you come towards winter, you have what the Bull Island is really well known for, 
are the thousands and thousands of birds that come to feed throughout the winter on the mudflats. And they also spread out into Dublin Bay. But at high tide, the vast majority of them roost and rest on the island because they have to digest food and so on. So it depends on the season. Again, in springtime, you have the change in migration. You have birds moving northwards. Again, it's a migratory station, but now we get a completely different range of birds. We get swallows, we get cuckoos, we get things. So depending on the season. So if you went down, for example, in uh, October or November, which is probably the best time to go down, um, because it's tidal and you want to see as many birds as you can, the tide comes in and out twice a day. Mm. And it pushes the birds. The birds follow it out as it goes out, as they're feeding. And as the tide comes in, it pushes it back into the two lagoons. That's the north and south lagoon. They're separated by a causeway. So if you stand on the causeway, maybe an hour and a half before the high tide time, just check the newspaper, and you can look on both sides of the causeway, with a pair of binoculars, if you have a telescope, it's great. And the birds are pushed right up beside the causeway, so you don't have to do anything. You just have to sit there. You can sit there with a book. You can sit there in your car, and they all approach you. And if you know what they are, it's simple. So if you're a photographer and you want to capture images of the birds, that's the place to go? That's what I do, and that's what many other people do. Now, I recommend the causeway because it's the easiest. It's the easier for people to get to, and the birds come on both sides of you. Uh, You can also go up along the bull wall itself, which was... uh, completed in uh, the uh, 1820s you can walk right to the end of that you get slightly different bird species there but they fly past you there and you can get them in flight so it depends on where you go on the island photography is simple on the island I do quite a lot of it myself and a lot of my friends do so it's perfect and you don't need hides just sit at it they're they're, they're quite habituated they're used to people so just sit at the side of the causeway and be patient that's all no that's why I'm just asking asking you are there hides on the island no and and I'm delighted they're not because that hides create honey honey pot effects where people gather and when you get people gathering it creates more disturbance and it does all that the causeway people are the birds are so used to people going walking up and down along the causeway that they they're a matter of meters away from the causeway so you don't even need the largest of lenses to photograph in here to see anything a small pair of binoculars something we would classify them as eight by torches a pair of eight you'll see nearly all the species and in fact the island itself uh, has over 200 species recorded on it about a hundred of them you would see if you went in each season for a day, a day or two, you know, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and you, and you had your eyes open, you were aware of what's going on. You'd probably see about 100 species. It's a very rich place too, and um, so you would have no problem in any season. It just depends on when you go. Has the bird population increased or decreased in recent years? Um, that's that's actually something I'm working on at the moment, and I was actually doing this morning, which is a good good, good time for this interview. Um, it depends. If, if you're talking about um, the, uh, the birds that will occur on the mudflats, these are the ducks and geese, and the wading birds, these are the ones with the long legs and the long beaks. People would know a courier, for example, or heron or something like that. Um, they, their, their populations are changing. They're all individual because they have individual populations, migration routes, and they have different things affecting them. Um, there are an average 30,000 birds on the island every winter. Some of them are decreasing, whilst a small number are increasing, very small number. So, at the moment, I can't say definitively, but it would appear that some, such as the duck species in particular, are going are collapsing. They've collapsed in the past 20 years. They've, they've gone from maybe five or 6,000 down to about 2,000. This is a mar- largely ecological, I think, rather than anything else. There's a lot of changes have happened on the island, which may have affected you know, the numbers that are coming. Maybe the same food resources are not there. Does it, it's very complex, and I won't know until I finish what I'm doing. Yeah. But it's I a very complex I presume it's a very complex ecosystem. It's so one of the most complex. Anything that happens within the bay will have a knock-on effect 
on the island. Well, the, hist- the history of the island itself says that, mm. and uh, I'm, I'm sure you know a little of it, is uh, the creation of the building of the south wall, mm. deflected the tidal currents, prevent the sands entering the shipping roads, but obviously when the currents were deflected it took sands with it, and within a short number of years, I think it was um, 1795, the, um, the south wall was completed. Within years of that, they realised that um, sand was now fi- filling the, uh, the, 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 the shipping lanes. So they constructed the, the North Pole Wall. That's the one that's there now. And when the tide goes out, it only has a very, very narrow channel which to go out, and that naturally scours away mm. all the sand. But the, co- the, the, the result of all that was more sand was now getting deposited on the island. And so everything that happens in the bay has an impact everything so even the shipping uh, you know uh, the, 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 manage, the management of the, of the shipping lanes many years ago has had a huge influence and in part created Norfolk Island so there's a knock-on effect everywhere. How safe is the ecological system on the island? It is very very sensitive uh, like everything else in nature I mean it's highly complex um, you, people don't seem to realize and even among science people that I know that um, the most important probably the most important thing is bacteria because bacteria breaks down all the nutrients and the organic matter for everything else to feed on. And so anything that affects bacteria, that breaks down everything, affects everything above in the food chain. So it's, uh, it's, it's very complex. So, uh, you know, any, ch- any changes to, to the, the flow of water, any changes to the mudflats or what's in the mudflats, the small little worms, for example, some, I don't, I'm not saying there's a chemical going, but if something should happen that affect them, that affects the birds that feed on them. And... Norfolk Island has many species that are there in internationally important concentrations. It's an extremely important wetland. Um, you know, it, um, I, I can't think offhand the number of species uh, that it's important for, but there's a lot of species that are there. And so it's, it's the high concentration of birds uh, in the wintertime, it's a migration station, and it's also individual birds there are in such concentrations that it makes the site of international importance. Tom, are there any safeguards that people should do? Now, I'm assuming that powerboating or jet skis would be ecologically unsound, but is there any safe pastimes that people can pursue uh, on the island? Um, yeah, I, this brings in a, a very complex area about management, management of a nature reserve. Um, what people tend not to understand about the island, even among some ecologists, unfortunately, is that uh, with the birds, for example, uh, they're there 12 months of the year. It's not just a place for the winter. And so in summertime, when people are active, uh, they might want to go boating or canoeing or sailing within the nature reserve. Now, in a lot of countries that I've been to, and I've been to, I think, 15 countries in two years, I've gone to a lot of nature reserves, that sort of activity is not permitted because it causes disturbance. Now, on Norpal Island, it's, it's a very complex management situation. Uh, I, can't really, I don't really know the ins and outs of it too well. Uh, but there's no reason why people can't go walking there, for example, and simply do or swimming. That I, I did that when I was a child. I grew up beside the island, and you know. But it's it's a question of a very delicate balance between usage and protection. It's a very very delicate balance, and achieving that balance is that balance is the challenge for the management of the island. Um, and there are two management uh, plans were drawn up, and so. The, the authorities who, who manage the island know precisely what they have to do, uh, and the question is simply implementing them. Um, and the legis- there's lots of there's lots of Irish and EU legislation as well that you have to comply with. So there's nothing stopping people from going down and enjoying it. But there are a lot of activities which cause a lot of harm to wildlife, both to the habitats, for example, and to uh, both the mammals, the birds, and the plant species, which the island is equally famous. So I think the message you're trying to get across is enjoy the island, but enjoy it responsibly. 
Absolutely, everything in moderation. Once something becomes, uh, you know, too involved, or just too many people doing it at one point, it tends to degrade an environment. It's it's known throughout the world. That's what happens. And uh, as I say, the delicate balance is getting protection, which is legally protected. Uh, getting the protection of everything there, right, uh, and underground enforcement, and then allowing people to enjoy it at the same time. That's that's the simple way forward. Sitting outside a cafe in one of Dublin Docklands' new developments, I spoke to two people who had just completed an Irish Sea crossing. I asked both Mark and Dave to outline their past experiences of Dublin Port. Dave, Dublin Port, what does it mean to you? Have you ever travelled to it? I have. Um, ju- well, just the once, really. Mostly um, I've been through Dundee, but I had to go through it in 2011 to get to Liverpool at one stage. So, Did you enjoy it? What was the experience like? It was quick and seamless. Just went through the um, the checkpoint and showed them my um, passport and my ticket and whatever have you. Then waited for the ferry to allow boarding and that was it, like straight through. Now, you've told me you're not from Dublin. No, I'm not, no, from Limerick, yeah. Getting to Dublin and getting out to the port, was that problematic or how did you find that? Now, at the time, I didn't go through the port tunnel, so but the traffic in the city centre wasn't wasn't too heavy. I was probably about an hour early, to be honest with you. Uh, facilities uh, in the port itself, how did you find those? Well, I didn't uh, get access to any of them really. It was um, it was a P and O ferry, so there was nothing there to access. There wasn't even uh, a building or anything like that. We were just waiting in our cars, really, to be honest with you. Okay, so you drove across, to roll uh, roll on. Yes, roll I, on. yes, I was in the car. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mark, yourself, you've travelled often to Dublin. I actually came into Dublin Port in 2007. I imported a car from the UK and I collected Manchester, drove to Liverpool and then got a ferry from Liverpool to Dublin Port that night. It was an overnight ferry. Now, why Dublin Port and not Cork, for example? Well, it, it was just Liverpool to Dublin Port was the ferry I got. Yeah. How did you find the experience? It was fine, but I, I got into Dublin Port early in the morning. It's not far from the city centre, mm. and it was between about half six and seven in the morning. So we drove straight, got is drove straight out of Dublin. Is it too close to the city centre? I mean, as soon as you come out of the port, you're, you're into very heavy traffic. Well, at the time I came into Dublin Port, it was so early in the morning there was no traffic. Pat Meehan worked for part of his teenage years during the seventies and eighties in Dublin Port. Pat kindly met and reminisced with me. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, teenager, one of my neighbours uh, started a small haulage company and uh, from time to time he'd, he'd get a few of the lads on the streets to uh, go down to the docks to help out loading stuff. But and, and uh, So I did that for a good while and he gradually built up a fleet of trucks for his business um, and he got the... They, they, he started. He started out maybe with pickups, but they ended up being artic. He ended up having articulated lorries, so uh, he could end up going down to the docks at half eight in the morning and uh, working on an orange boat. That's an orange. A ship would pull in, and uh, there'd be a queue of trucks, truckers lined up, and uh, the boat would be offloaded. The dockers would be down the hold. Mm. The cranes would lift the. the the, the pallets of orange boxes up and we'd stack them on the back of the truck fill it up and go off and, and bring it to a depot that's that's one area of what you'd be doing um, there was also cement trains to be done 
down at the uh, workplace. What, was it hard work, Pat? I mean, oh, you talk about some dusty. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dusty, uh, dirty, sweaty, grimy, particularly in the summer. You know, if you're down there in the summer, um, in the heat, you could be in the in the uh, the rail yard, um, offloading cement trucks, and you know you're looking at a, a, a carriage full of cement bags and that'll be all you'd, you'd empty all that stuff you'd empty mm-hmm. all the bags you'd pack all the bags onto the back of the truck and off you'd go to deliver them and that was and of course in those days health and safety concerns weren't really an issue like they are now there was no health and safety concerns there weren't any check safety checks or anything there was no safety equipment no safety boots no safety clothing nothing you worked in in your own gear um how about the people you worked with? Did you make friends or was it a close... You would imagine in a situation like that that anybody who was working there would have been, because of the hardship, would have been very, very close together. Uh, well, we had, you had mates mm. and they were all from your own area. Like, we all lived around one area. So, yeah, you'd have, you'd have friends. Uh, and the boss himself, sure, was a neighbour who lived up the road, you know. We're talking about North Dublin, I suppose. We're talking about uh, Ballybock. <coughs> Ballybock area of Dublin, yeah. Um, crime you, you hear about ports and docklands and prostitution and crime did that happen do you remember around not we we i i can't remember ever hearing anything about prostitution to mm. be quite honest what, what there was going on in the in the docks was pilferage there was quite a lot of pilferage mm. of goods out of sheds and uh out of stores you know and was that looked at, at as being a perk of the job you could say it would be yeah. certain people who worked in that uh, industry so to speak would have taken it for granted that it was a perk of the job mm. but um, I've, I'd never heard of anybody being arrested or charged with it or, or losing their job or anything like that because I don't know whether it went on to I've never seen it going on to any great extent mm. um, to see somebody being pinched for it or, or arrested of for course, it. Of course, I presume you're talking about, if you're talking about ship loads or truck loads of oranges, you're talking about a, a, a vast amount of, of goods that a few dozen oranges wouldn't really be missed. No. Um, Pat, dockers, by their very nature, have a reputation of being hard men, of yeah. being heavy drinkers, yeah. um, you know, up early in the morning, yeah. going to bed late at night. Would that be, would, it, would that have been your experience? Yeah, but they were, they were, they were tough, but They'd be fair. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They look after their own. There was no, um, there was no animosity amongst them. If you were if you were working down there and they saw you working hard and pulling your weight, you were one of them. You weren't some outsider who didn't deserve uh, to be taught well of. Do you know what I mean? It's, it'd be a bit of slagging, all right, but it would be. Uh, good-natured banter, that sort of thing. Was it hard to get a job there, or was it were the jobs defined and kept for those who had relations, who had family connections? Well, people on the docks all had buttons. They were button men. Do you know what I mean? And uh, if you weren't in, you didn't get a job there. I mean, it, it was it was. It was now, when you say what's a button man? Well, the button men were were uh, men who had. Um, a thing called a button on their jacket it denoted them as a docker do you know what I mean and they ah, had privilege it yeah. was, you were privileged if you had a if you were a button man like other people who would walk into the into the port looking for casual labour on a daily basis um, they didn't have the same status as the button man do you know what I mean so it this was, is a trade union thing well it was kind of like a tra- I'm not I'm not too well up on whether they were all unionised or not I don't know whether they were or not I don't yeah. think they were I think the button the button was 
a badge of a badge that gave them the status that they they had. In and I suppose it probably designated as well that these peop- these people were capable of doing the job. Uh, and yeah, would know what to do. And oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they'd, they'd know the run of the docks. Like they'd know every art and part of it. You know. Looking back at your experiences in the docks. Are you happy to have worked there? Are you glad that you worked there? Was it a learning experience for a young fellow in those days? Well, it was, because it toughened you up quite a lot. I mean, physically, um, it toughened you up, because you were you were just used to doing hard physical work, and um, you didn't refuse the work, because then somebody else would get get mm. your place in there. I mean, it was, it was earning money, do you know what I mean? It was... Um, we weren't afraid of hard work in those days, hard physical work. My grandmother works in the port and he, just inside the port, he does like a big pump that controls all like the water flowing and he fixes that. So every night he goes down to the port and he has to like get through like big barriers to see if the port is even, to see if like the pump is working and to make sure like the water is flowing right. You're listening there to the voices of primary school children who attend St. Patrick's School, which is situated in Dublin's Docklands. In order to hear their views on living near the Docklands, my colleague Alan Weldon went to the school and recorded some Vox Pops. Could you tell me a little bit about the person that you know that works in the port? Uh, It's my uncle and he works on the computers and he looks at where the boats are coming in from and how like where they come out from just to make sure that they're not going to crash on and he talks to the captains on the boat to tell them if they're going to hit on like a rock or another boat and does he be working in the daytime or nighttime or do you know the nighttime and the daytime because he goes to me we grandas and sleeps there in the daytime so mostly the nighttime and could you tell me what's it like for you living next to the port? Uh, it's a bit loud because you can just hear all the cranes moving and all. Yeah. And all the people shouting, so it's noisy. All right. But I don't, I don't really hear it because I do be asleep. My uncle works up like Nisha's uncle up where the computers and all are, and he's always looking at like to make sure like the weather and all is good for the boats coming out and make sure they're not crashing with all the like stuff that they have loaded on the boats. And that concludes episode one of Posh. Port Out Starboard Home is a four-part radio documentary on Dublin Port, its people and its neighbourhood. My thanks to all those who contributed to this episode.